Off the ball, rugby. Lads are kind of having a snigger at me when you're coaching, going, "Well, yeah, you're Irish, but you can't get by the quarterfinal, you know." And they won't say it, but I, I know they were thinking. Join that. in the obsession. Subscribe now at offtheball.com forward slash join. Hello, rugby fans. Shane Hannan from Off the Ball here. When you filled up on rugby goodness, I wanted to give you a recommendation for our weekly F1 pod. We have Conor Murr with some of his famous Formula One impressions. Brilliant contributions from insiders like Aston Martin's former head of race strategy Bernie Collins and multiple Grand Prix winner John Watson. You'll get the F1 pod for free, available every Wednesday after race weekends by searching F1 pod OTB wherever you get your podcasts. Really, really hope you subscribe. We aim to find the balance between fun for new Formula One fans who might have come to the sport from Drive to Survive on Netflix, but also nuggets of nerdy info for the true F1 fanatics. And by the way, the F1 pod on Off the Ball is brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. Here's a taster with some of our best bits from across the season. Starting here with Conor Murr's appearance. Have a listen, enjoy, and let us help you forget those Rugby World Cup woes. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it. That, that must have been a bit of a pinch me moment, even Austin last year, where you know you're you're there. I guess as guests of the organizers, and you know you've gone from I guess doing you know videos on your mobile phone to all of a sudden being at a Grand Prix and and everyone probably recognizes you at it because you've you've put up all these videos. It must have been a strange one. Oh, Monaco was like it was wow. Uh, we came out with the hotel and I think I was staying in the same hotel as some of the drivers. Like, so when I came out, like these people ran at me. My wife was like, <laughs> like, this doesn't happen ever. And these, all these kids ran over and like, it took me every morning about 10 minutes to get out of the hotel where you took pictures and you were there and you were like signing tops and hats. <laughs> and then even when I was driving to the, to the racetrack, as I was coming in in the car, People were banging on the window, like pointing at me and stuff. And I was like, this is the craziest thing ever. And then when I was going to Monaco, we were over in Nice. And I said to my wife, I was like, let's go over Saturday. Because like, that would be a bit mad or whatever. You know what I mean? Same crack as Austin. Went to Monaco. I'd say about four people come up to me all weekend. <laughs> I was like, yeah. It was a completely different vibe in Monaco. You could see like in Monaco, to be fair, it's a, I don't know if there's like when I was at Austin, it was all about the race. Everything was about the race. And when I was at Monaco, I felt everything was like, oh, there's Neymar. Oh, there's Tom Holland. It was a bit more like you were at the Oscars or something. It wasn't the, the race was kind of something that was happening in the background or something. Yeah. <laughs> that takes time, I'd say, even Bernie, like to get used to when you see the, because it's one of those sports that has become so mainstream. Like there's no other sport where you see so many celebrities on the, you know, the pit lane and, and, and the grid before, before a race starts. It's a bit crazy. Yeah, it definitely is. I'm like, I'm glad I was going to ask Connor a question. I was going to ask if he brought his wife along, given that she got him into it. But I'm glad to hear that he did. So that's positive. <laughs> wife. <But, laughs> I thought you were going to say two wives there, Connor. So good. <laughs> she when we watched when we got to the third episode of uh, Drive to Survive, I think it went to Monaco, Monaco, Monte Carlo, yeah. And she just looked at me and she went, "If you go there, I'm going there." She's from Donegal. <laughs> Like, if you go there, I'm going there with you. So she's actually been to me. She's been with me twice to the two Grand Prix I've been at. And the next one I'm going to as well, she's she's booked in. The great thing for her is that she's finally interested in a sport that I do. The rest of them, she couldn't care. Yeah. I just, the thing for me is like, you get to the grid and you see people on the grid and you get that someone's importance coming or in the paddock or whatever, because 
that person will be coming with a bit of an entourage and like Connor says, people running up trying to get photos or signatures or whatever. Nine times out of 10, I don't know who that person is. <laughs> and then that person walks past me and I have to say to someone, who is that? And then it's like someone that I know I should recognize. But I think because you're so into, you know, unlike Connor, so into the one sport and I don't really sit at home and watch the other sports. I don't watch the football or whatever it might be. Unless it's like a, mu- a musician that I know, then it's just lost on me or in someone like someone will tell me and then I'll have forgotten by the next week so I'm just sort of like head in the clouds bumping into people not really realizing what's going on <laughs> you, you sound like Martin Brundle <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like that. basically same thing it, it, it's funny because like I'd say you were licking your lips watching Drive to Survive Connor because you see someone like Gunther Steiner Toto Wolf uh, Carlos Sainz Daniel Ricardo. like they, there's they're all I don't know maybe it's it's the same in other sports but they're all so expressive and uh, like I'd imagine people that you're just dying to impersonate oh b- big time um, like actually for next year I actually want to try and do a video at the start of the year where I attempt to do all 20 drivers like right. just to keep, it'll take ages like I kind of need to start on it like maybe in November or something but um, <laughs> that was the big thing for me as well when I was watching that I was like oh my god this is easy because in other sports they don't really say much um, they don't give away much while in Formula One you are obligated to get out of the car you're still sweating and everything you wipe yourself down and you know you're pretty much over into the media pen you know fairly soon after that so whatever emotion like look at George at the weekend like he's crying <laughs> he's literally you know you can see or he's after wiping away the tears like he's so upset while if you got George an hour later if he went to a dressing room and he came out like he's he's gonna he's more composed so that for me is just huge with Formula One. And then Drive to Survive gave me like the characters, like, you know, as in you're watching Daniel, like Daniel Ricardo, like he ha- he's just so, so big. Like he's probably, you know, he's up there with the biggest drivers in the world. And a lot of it is to do with his personality and how likable he is. And, you know, the big smile like that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the first I was kind of like yeah you know I just love it I call so small in my you know he was one of the first and Carlos was easy like I remember look, I literally that's the line I looked at my wife I was like we're sitting on the couch I was like my name is Carlos Sainz I'm a driver with Ferrari and she was like oh my god that's brilliant so I was like I knew I had him but um, yeah it just it just gave me an insight into who they are as people which makes it easier for you to write funny stuff around them because it's like in golf, I find it pretty hard. The live stuff this year was good. And obviously Netflix tried to do the same thing with the golf. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, like golf is harder to kind of follow. It goes on for so much longer. And they spend five hours playing golf. And of that five hours, maybe over four of those hours are walking. Mm-hmm. You know, So like if you like one episode was on a guy called Joel Damon. But we haven't really seen him playing golf at all this year because he's not been in contention. But like in Drive to Survive, Everybody is in contention for something, whether, you know, it's the Haas lads trying to score points. It's like, I, I don't know, was it like Jeddah, one of those races? I remember after it, like Williams scored a point and it was like they celebrated like they won the Grand Prix. And that's what I think is amazing about Formula One. Like some people come on and they go, what a boring race for Stappen won it again. It's like, well, depending on what you're watching, yeah, it's boring. If you're just watching to see who won the race, it's boring. But if you're looking at like, a battle between Alonso and Lewis and like that, like it does matter if Mercedes beat Ferrari or Ferrari beat Mercedes and stuff like that. Like there's so much more to play for and so much more going on, I think in Formula One, which makes it for me, like at the minute, it's the one I enjoy most. 
it's it's posture as well it's it's like even when from some of your videos like you had the lewis hamilton jewelry and like even the kemi reichland one where he's just sitting down in the seat and the the posture is so uh i guess the posture of a man who doesn't want to talk and hates interviews really yeah you know that's incredible to be here you know on this podcast whatever your name is <laughs> he's, uh, he's. I actually met a guy at the weekend. I was doing a golf gig, and he's mates with a few of the drivers. He's like, uh, "I met Kimmy. Yeah, he thinks you're a. C- See you next Tuesday." <laughs> Does he really? <laughs> well, I don't know. I doubt he thinks of it. Like maybe he was in for a job, so I don't know. But uh, yeah. yeah, there's like uh, he's. It's weird. I do transplant some characters like from one sport to another, and I'm like, "Oh, he's like that. He's like that." And then Francesco Molinari, the golfer that I was doing for so long, uh, who just has that like bland expression on his face, who just doesn't really, like he has no expressions and he just kind of says stuff like, yeah, really excited to be out there. I was like, well, there's Kimmy. Like, so sometimes a bit of the work I've done over the last couple of years, like just, you know, helps in sort of formulating characters. I was actually, I, I actually, I'm literally at the minute doing like a little radio um, green screen background thing where I'm going to have radio Kimmy. <laughs> uh, it's going to be like his own podcast where people are just calling in and I thought it'd be deadly if I, had, I was I'm maybe thinking about putting Will Buxton with him so you've one of them like that is just like you know nearly climax and talking about F1 and the other fellas <laughs> like and this uh, did really shit wasn't it it's going to be very good Connor <laughs> yeah no I think that's, 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 that's I've been waiting on that idea I'm kind of I'm like digitally building the set for it that's that's amazing because it's 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 one of those sports and that's why we were half joking at the start about about you impersonating Bernie at some stage but it's that it's one of those sports where the the pundits because the TV coverage is so big the, the punditry and the analysis is is so important like the likes of Will Buxton and the other guys and and, and on on TV you know they're they're such important figures in the sport as well massively this this is one thing I have a bee in my bonnet this year like and I think it's just because I'm been over at F one and stuff and I'm like. The GEA needs a little bit more media. It needs more PR. It needs some like characters talking about it. Like, because this is the first year I kind of felt outside some good games. I was like, there was no real storylines. And I like to do like, I, I way, way prefer of all the games that I do. I love my GA stuff and I want to do plenty of it and stuff. And I found this year, like it was very hard to come up with. I, now, definitely my interest, obviously being involved in different games, you can't give it the attention that you've given it before. But like, I just think F1, like just has like the coverage of it is so good uh, on a Sunday. I just sit there and I will watch before it on Sky. I'll watch the race. You know, you press that. I'm like, I'm going to actually, I do actually do some stuff for Sky. So it sounds like I'm plugging Sky Iron at the time, <laughs> but, um, but it's, it's just so good. And it just, it's as a product, they make it even when the winner just walks away with it. And the, I don't know, the championship has been won months ago, not even weeks ago. It's still interesting. And I'll still watch every race and I'll still like get excited about like all the way up to Abu Dhabi. Like, and I just think it it does such a good job between everybody, between F1, between Sky, they do such a great job of giving you the most entertaining product they can give you. That that must be something, Bernie, that you you guys have have very much in, in the back of your heads. Like, Across those, say, last 10 races like before the weekend just gone where, you know, Max Verstappen is winning. It's a bit of a procession every week. But yet you guys still have to make it interesting and, and, and point out the, you know, the battles of the midfield or or the race for the podium or or even, a, a, a you know, a nice little overtaking battle w- further down the grid. You have to make it interesting somehow. Yeah, well, I think, to be honest, I think that was easier 
in my position than some of the other guys because yeah some people out there are only interested in who's winning but I've spent so long in that midfield battle and there's so many good midfield battles that that really actually interests me to see who's doing where and the fact that you can't predict who's going to be P2, 3, 4, maybe all the way, you know, like quite far down. You don't know where the order is going to end up. So I I actually find that bit reasonably okay. There's always been loads of stories to talk about, be it wonder how we're doing well or badly or whatever it might be. So there's always, because you've got these 20 individual teams, players, all trying to have their own little individual battles, there's always something to pick up on or and um, so there's always a lot there's always more almost to report on than what you can report on in the time you have available so it's just about picking the stuff that's most interesting and the bit for me that's the challenge of what we're trying to work on going forward is how do you sell that midfield story well during the race how do you keep everyone well enough informed of what's going on all these little other battles that are happening because I think we have had a lot of tv in the past particularly where it's just who won the race, and that's the only driver you're watching for the entire 50, 60 laps, whatever it might be. So I think we are getting better at that. Um, and yeah, like there's there's loads of interesting stuff. And I think the thing we have now is that so many people are so keen to learn and be that the new fans learning something, you know, right at the beginning or the people who've been watching it for 30, 40, whatever number of years that are want to get more in-depth to the tyre models, whatever it might be. So yeah, there's loads out there. It's just how we package it and get out there. I've probably have spoken to you about this before, Bernie, but like th- that, uh, I guess, progression from race strategy and the engineering side of things into the media, was that was that something you always had in the back of your head or was that something that kind of came about <laughs> coincidentally? No, it just sort of happened. So I didn't, I stopped racing because I didn't want to do 23 races. I actually really loved what I did. I loved doing strategy. I loved the pressure of being on the pit wall. I love the influence that I had in the race, I suppose, being honest. You know, you had a big effect on what happened at the end of the Sunday, albeit just one team. But you were so involved in it all. And I, and I got on really well with the people I travelled with, enjoyed the travelling. But at some point you have to realise you're not 20 and actually you probably shouldn't do, you know, 25 or whatever it is, weeks away from home. You should maybe be a bit more settled than that. So I elected to just give it up. And it was really good, actually. And then... Um, the, the media stuff's just happened off the back of that a bit randomly um, without loads of training, which is a bit worrying, but there you go. But it, it brings a different element um, and it's about trying to improve the overall coverage that we get and sort of seeing how it goes. Like it might work out, it might not work out. Let's see. Um, this year's been okay, I think. Um, but let's see where it goes next year. Yeah, that was Conor Murr and Bernie Collins with me on an episode of the F1 pod uh, quite recently. We want to bring you some more highlights now from previous weeks. We were joined uh, a number of weeks back as well by, again, Bernie Collins, former head of race strategy with the Aston Martin Formula 1 team, and Nadia Elferdusi, who's an influencer, an Irish influencer, and also Formula 1 fanatic. And we discussed, I guess, the joys of heading to a Formula 1 race weekend. Welcome aboard, Nadia, to the, the first episode. You, you're a you're an admirer of Bernie's work from a distance, I think, as well as as we all are on television these days. Yeah, I really am. And Bernie, like every weekend that you're there with Sky, you can just see the feedback from everybody is saying that that's what was missing before. And I'm a new fan, so I I'm learning loads from your insights. But I think it's old fans as well that just didn't understand all of those. You really break it down very easily for us to understand. Um, all of the strategy stuff and I know that you you always kind of give the disclaimer oh tyre chat can be boring but not with the last race weekend anyway 
I have to do the disclaimer because the guy I can see the guys in the commentary box just like their eyes rolling over when I do it. I, I don't think it's boring. But thank you for the support. Like the support from home in particular has been great. You know, you get messages every weekend and it, it's um yeah, really positive to see. So long may I continue. Uh, what's your what's your um race going schedule like Nadia? Do you get to many Formula One races? Is it a case of watching on TV or what's your what's your fandom been like? What's the story of your fandom? I made it to my first track, um, Silverstone, this year, and I just went for the Friday. And I'm going to be honest with you, it was so overwhelming that I left on Friday and didn't go back. I just wanted to watch it on TV. So I only started watching last year, and I just love my race weekends at home, being able to hear the commentary and, and watch every part of it. Like, if I'm at home, I will watch every part of practice and the whole whole nine yards. I actually missed Ted's notebook this week. Hopefully he's back soon. Um, but yeah, I, I'm thinking of going to Kota, so something a little different, but, um, I, I love watching it. It's the first question everybody asked me, have you been, or are you going to Monaco? But I don't know. I like to be able to, I, I definitely have to watch the race again if I was there live. Yeah, it's a fair point. I think you, you've mentioned Kota, haven't you before Bernie is one of the, I think you said it, it's, it's one of the good ones in terms of the, the social life, I guess, in Austin as well. Yeah. Austin's a really interesting city. Like it's. It, it's it's an interesting one in that it's a little bit out of the centre of the city so there's a bit of like transport back and forth but they sort of do a big concert at the track and things I sort of agree with Nadia saying like whenever I've been to a race or stood in the grandstand sometimes you feel a little bit disjointed from what's happening so you need to be I felt a bit careful that you're opposite a screen or opposite the pit lane or something so that you can at least get more of a feel of what's going on or it's a bit like I guess we all have experienced in our own lives of for me it's been sat in football stadiums where you've got you know the older guy sat next to you with his radio but he actually knows what's going on so everyone's asking him what's you know happening so I do think it's one of those things where yeah it's sort of the right setup but you struggle to get network for your phone to do your timing app or whatever it might be but um there's a different experience in terms of hearing the cars and getting the atmosphere. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's probably it's probably a victim of its own success, Formula One, in some ways, because it's been such a, a good sport to watch on TV, and the TV coverage is is so excellent, and the punditry is excellent, and the even the you know the ability to hear the car radios, I guess Nadia as well, me, means that when people go to an actual track, sometimes they're like, oh Jesus, I I'm not getting all the the coverage that I usually get at home. Yeah, well, my friend was there th- this weekend and I was kind of filling her in and what was going on. You know, <laughs> she was going during the red flag, are we, are we starting back again? Or, you know, I was actually able to tell her faster than she was getting the information at the track. It's mad. It's crazy. And, and, and I can understand the Silverstone thing as well. I've never been, but I remember it was it John Watson was on one of, the, one of the episodes with us recently and he was basically describing it as a, as a, as a festival. You know, it's it's essentially a, a festival with a, with a race going on around it. So it's one of those... Race weekends that I can imagine overwhelming is probably a good word to use, Nadia. Yeah, and also the the weather, you know. Oh, this course. weekend this weekend didn't look like the one that you want to be sitting in the grandstands, but those Dutch fans, you know, they were just dancing and happy and smiling the whole weekend, weren't they? <laughs> well, this weekend's a different a difficult one because um my other half was actually in the grandstand for a lot of it, but there was a lot of photos of some very wet looking lads trying to do their best to stay dry. Um, but I think the atmosphere, you know, was really incredible. And then I think, you know, post that has been a difficult weekend because of all of the flight chaos in the UK, it's been quite difficult to get mm. home. So I think there's a few that are reevaluating what they've done this weekend. 
Yep, that was Nadia El Ferdusi and Bernie Collins with me on a recent episode of the F1 pod. It's Shane Hannan here with you. This is a bonus podcast this week. No race weekend, of course, just gone by. Want to bring you some highlights now. John Watson, someone we've had on the show a number of times, different weeks. Former uh, Irish race driver in Formula One. He's won a Formula One Grand Prix on five different occasions. He's had an incredible career. Uh, and this was, uh, I guess, in, in the wake of the Qatar Grand Prix recently. Uh, different drivers feeling the heat, the dehydration, uh, and in including a, a terrible case of uh, Esteban Ocon, who got sick in his helmet uh, on one of the early laps in the race as well because of the heat and exhaustion uh, of doing that. John Watson spoke about his own experiences of actually getting sick in his helmet at some point during his career. Uh, both he and Bernie Collins discussed the heat that was in the Qatar Grand Prix of recent. Have a listen. The tyre, the I guess, procedures at the weekend, slightly different from what we've seen, as Bernie says, and, and, and that played into it as well. I, I, like... Is that the way forward? I know F1 has come a long way in terms of tyre strategy and, and degradation and, and how that's all treated, but uh, can it go even further? Well, this situation of Pirelli was dumped on the teams basically on Sunday morning. They didn't have an option. So the, the, the kind of strategy, tyre strategy, that some teams would have implemented would have created a different scenario in the race. But effectively, everybody was doing three, 50, three equal, whatever it was, 18 or 19 lap stints on tyres that had to run both or at least two different compounds, but most started on the, on the yellow and did a stint on the whites and maybe went back to the yellows again. So indeed, I mean, there was a, a different dynamic introduced, catching people unawares, and it was sort of going into no man's land. No one had ever really been there at a, at a particular circuit where you've got a lot of high G in high temperatures, high humidity, and the expectation is that you have to push for the entirety of the, of the Grand Prix. And some drivers seem to have that capacity more than others. I mean, look, I've, I've also vomited in my helmet, not in a race, but doing a test. And I can assure you it is no pleasant thing. Or to find yourself going through a sequence of very fast corners, not unlike in Turkey, where they've got that long double or triple left-hand corner, which probably generates even higher Gs than the ones we were seeing in Qatar. So drivers have experienced those kind of loads over the duration of a Grand Prix, but where I think Qatar was different was because of the mandating of the tyre regulation. Uh, then you were essentially doing it for the entirety of the race rather than, as uh, Bernie had mentioned, you can maybe back off a little bit, lift and coast, or just breathe it a bit in the corner and give yourself a chance. But it was a different scenario, one that maybe was unique, unlikely to reoccur. This Grand Prix will be six weeks later in, 22, in 2024. So the temperatures, ambient and, and humidity, ought to be lower. But I, I still think, and Bernie mentioned that both Singapore and Japan were, certainly Japan was abnormally warm. Again, it was a little earlier than normal. Um, Singapore is always hot it's on the equator. Maybe the preparation for drivers now in light of the possibility of having a number of races consecutively where you're running in these extreme conditions, they might look at how they prepare their drivers. And I still maintain that there is a difference between preparing a driver for his race fitness and preparing a driver to have a stamina, a level of stamina that will enable them to continue drive through that event relatively comfortably. You, you referenced an, an incident there, John, where you, where you vomited in, in your helmet from your own career. Like you, you'll have uh, the utmost empathy then I'd imagine with, with Esteban Ocon from the weekend. How, how did that incident come about in your career? Well, I was just, I was doing a test. This is way back in 1993. Williams, Renault invited a number of TV people down to Paul Ricard to drive the car that Alain Prost 
had won that world championship, that year's world championship. And this was the most advanced, sophisticated Grand Prix car of its day, active suspension. Everything was controlled by a computer. I mean, it's just phenomenal to drive. And I hadn't driven a single-seater at that point for a considerable length of time. And when you then are exposed to the, the quite violent levels of acceleration, braking, lateral load, so you're, you're basically your, your abdomen, your gut is sort of going, I mean, let me just, going in and out like that. And inevitably, it can lead to motion sickness, which is what I had. So you're, you're accelerating pretty hard, and all of a sudden, you find yourself being ill in your helmet. Now, because of the balaclava helmet that we wear, it contains, I don't want to get gruesome about this, but it contains whatever you might bring up. I don't know what Esteban Ocon, whether he brought up volumes or whether it was only a small volume, but it, you know, to have that in your helmet and driving around, and the, the moment that it happens, actually, it actually is very, it's difficult because suddenly your breathing is affected by it. You're trying to get a breath and you're struggling to get your breath and at the same time you're, being, you're vomiting in your helmet. It's not a great experience, not something nice. And I think Esteban Ocon, did an outstanding job in, in the Grand Prix to bring that car home and get points. And, um, you know, I think Alpine should be very proud of him. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it is. A, look, it is a gruesome topic. Sorry for anyone eating their dinner or their breakfast listening to this, but it is It is one of those topics that just... If you want the colour of all the little lumps and you know, <laughs> have carrots for breakfast or whatever. We put a warning over this uh, this podcast this week. Um, like, I saw the argument, Bernie, even after, you know, this whole argument of the heat and everything. I, there, there's some people making the argument online, you know, uh, drivers are just cannon fodder. They're they're almost pawns in the entertainment business and they're just being thrust out there in, in, in temperatures and conditions in which they shouldn't be. Like, what do you say, I guess, to, to that argument? I think it's going to be an interesting one because I think if the drivers had realised pre-race how tough it was going to be if there was such an understanding of bringing all those elements together that we discussed, maybe there would have been more of a discussion. And in this instance, there was no because the tyre rules was done on safety grounds, there was no kickback option. There was no, oh, should we do that? There was no room for discussion. I can guarantee that in um, Austin, when the drivers go to next and the driver's briefing, it's going to come up and it's going to be really heavily discussed there and changes will be made going forward. So I think it would have been interesting if there had been a discussion or a realisation pre-race, if there'd been like a Sunday morning emergency driver's meeting, whatever the case might be. It would have been interesting to see who'd have stood up then, who'd have said, this isn't the right conditions for us to go racing or we're not happy to go racing or whatever. But probably when you're five laps into the race, the drivers then in the helmet, in the car, don't, you know, the desire is to keep racing and to do as well as you can. So that sort of overrules the other desires at that point. So there would have been two very different discussions, I think, inside or outside the car. So I don't, I just, the drivers do have a, a good voice in many things. You know, they do have the drivers meeting, they do have their groups where they discuss together any safety issues and stuff. So I fully think that will be happening in Austin. And there's been a lot of discussion about what happens in other series, be that temperature sensors in the car, you know, the drivers have the biometric gloves that we use if there's an accident. So there's, there is information and data there that we can be using and could be using from a safety ground going forward to say, you know, this is the hard limit of either ambient. Or, and it's a very complex formula, right? It's ambient, track temperature, humidity, wind, G-forces. There's a lot that goes into where the limit lies. And we're only really starting to explore that. Um, but it, I think it would be it would be extremely interesting to be in the drivers' meeting next weekend because that is going to be where 
I think the kickback's going to come. Whatever they're saying publicly would be very different in that room, I think. I can imagine it, it, that's the room in which they'll, they'll certainly let their feelings be known. Like John, that's a, that's an excellent point Bernie makes. Even just the, I guess the technology and those, the, you know, the biometric gloves and everything else. The technology has developed. I saw some people point, you know, pointing back to uh, the example. It was the Indy Five Hundred in nineteen fifty three. Carl Scarborough was, was a driver who withdrew with a heat related illness and and then died in the uh, the infield medical center afterwards. And even drivers of the weekend were talking about the fact that these guys are hitting such speeds that concentration needs to be at its absolute optimum and, and with the heat that's just not possible well I mean to, to recap what we've been talking about it was almost a perfect storm in terms of all the elements that came together on the on the day of the Grand Prix and it was all capped off principally by this tyre regulation change had that not been introduced I suspect that probably maybe one or two drivers might have struggled but not the number that did so again you have to sit down and talk about analyse it and come up with maybe better solutions and there are always going to be approaches to how do we make sure that driver's safety and driver's health is given principal consideration. Look, I can think back to when I went to South America for the first time in 1974, early part of January, and I'll tell you, it, was, it was unbelievably hot and the humidity was high and we had cars with front mounted radiators in them, water pipes running through them. So it's not something that's new where maybe Formula One is now and the level of technology that, and the, the, just the, the, the design criteria is so just amazing. Drivers are not accustomed to being confronted with these kind of conditions. Look, the other event I went to, 1984, Dallas Grand Prix. When I stepped out of the hotel in the morning, I thought I stepped into an Aga oven. It was on, I've never been anywhere in my life pre or post that's been as hot. And it just, you couldn't escape it. Just, it's just like somebody just put their arms around you and just tried to suffocate you. Mm. And even the same in Malaysia at, uh, Sakira, at the Sakira circuit, similar kind of temperature, big G-force corners as well. It's not new, but what I think compounded the whole thing was this tire matter in the interest of safety. I remember it was done in the interest of safety, but as a consequence of doing it, in the interest of safety, it's cast up other questions about the safety and uh, the, the uh, driver's health and potentially suffering heat exhaustion and even worse. I mean, I've actually watched that race recently, that Indy race, uh, and there was a curiosity that but that was a front engine car with the engine literally almost alongside you, a big exhaust pipe. And different era, different times, drivers weren't prepared. They, in fact, spent most of the time eating steak and drinking beer. Time to take a very quick ad break now. We'll be back with you on the F1 pod on Off The Ball here very shortly. Hello, Shane Hannan here, host of the F1 pod on Off The Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 pod from Off The Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado, the F1 pod. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One. Yeah, we go to town on it. 
Yeah, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod this week. Shane Hannan here with you. This is a bonus episode where we're bringing you some of the highlights of recent weeks on the show. I want to bring you some highlights now recently as well when Max Verstappen uh, equaled the record for a number of race wins in a row. Bernie Collins was discussing some controversial comments from the Mercedes team principal Toto Wolff on Max's record. A few maybe sour grapes, it has to be said. Really, really interesting comments that I, I, I mean, Toto Wolff and Christian Horner's Tete a tete often um, brings a smile to my face, but um, Bernie, the comments from from Toto Wolf after this weekend were uh, were something else. He says, "For me, these types of records are completely irrelevant." He's speaking about the ten in a row uh, for Max. They were irrelevant in our good days in Mercedes. I don't know how many races we won in a row, and I didn't even know that there was a count for how many races in a row you win. Um, I mean, you love you love to see it, don't you? Well, I just. It's got to be a bit misplaced. I can imagine if it was the other way around, someone's coming to him in his office and saying, mm-hmm. you know, at this, you know, the press briefing for each team will be fully this weekend. If we win, we're going to be X number in a row or whatever it might be. Now, of course, there were times at Mercedes where the drivers were closer than they have been this year. But let's be clear, not closer than they were at the start of this year. So, you know, the first four or five races, I think it was two, three, Max and Perez. So, Yes, Perez has taken a dive after that and Max has fully benefited from him. But to keep that focus is un- unbelievable. And I would be shocked if the shoe was on the other foot that Mercedes weren't selling it as this is our 10, you know, all of the marketing that, that Red Bull are doing with it. And of course, we're talking about it. And of course, we should talk about it because... You know, you are dry. It is It is a sport. It is a sport where things can go wrong. It is a sport where you need to hold your focus, get behind, you know, week on week, not make mistakes, not slip up on reliability, strategy, pit stops. Car. There's so many elements that come together that, that it's not just the car. The car is quick, don't get me wrong. But even that, to have taken the same rules as everyone else and built a car that's that much stronger. And I think at one point a few races ago, there was a quote from Toto, if they finish second, you know, they can't win every year and they're aware of that. And finish second isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is when you look at how far behind they are. So to have said that on one hand and then on the other hand say he doesn't care how many they win in a row is a bit counterintuitive. So I, that's maybe a bit off the cuff that he said that um, because I don't believe that any team in the pit lane is thinking we would happily take it if we were in that position of winning ten in a row, and we would be celebrating every single one. Uh, and and John, it's 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 kind of akin to comments that we heard from Lewis Hamilton at the weekend. He uh, he was asked about Verstappen's achievement, and he said uh, Max hasn't been paired against potent teammates um, who would give him a tough fight. Um, essentially, as opposed to the I guess the, the teammates that Hamilton has had over the years, and he also said that Verstappen's uh, Verstappen's success has been blown up way out of proportion compared to his own. Um, I know people like Martin Brundle were coming out of the woodwork kind of saying you don't want to really hear those sorts of comments from from Lewis and if this was a tennis player or a football player achieving these things they would rightly be lauded so I mean in one, on one hand you want to see the kind of competitive spirit between the two but, but you also want to see achievements like this being praised I think the comments by both people were disingenuous uh, the achievement it's a new record there sometimes it's better to say less you know and just congratulate Max or congratulate Red Bull. Don't have to embellish it with anything else. Just say, you know, congratulations on it, on your achievement. That's And leave it there. But to start going through, as Lewis did, well, he's never had a competitive teammate. Well, just some people might say that Valtteri Bottas wasn't a competitive teammate. 
some people might have said even Nico Rosberg was certainly maybe more competitive than Valtteri Bottas, but was he really that competitive? He got lucky when he won his championship because Lewis had a lot of unreliability in 2016. Mm. You know, sometimes just say less, but be generous in saying congratulations, a wonderful achievement. Yeah, Bernie Collins and uh, John Watson was on that episode as well, discussing Total Wolf's comments on Max Verstappen equaling the record for number of race wins on a recent episode of the F1 pod. And we have more for you now. John Watson, the five-time race winner in Formula 1, who's had an incredible career. He had an Ask Me Anything episode quite recently where we took different comments from viewers and from listeners. And this is John Watson speaking about his relationship with his former teammate, Nicky Lauda. One question that that has come up uh, with people uh, getting in touch with me, John, but also in in my own head as well is that word nerves and adrenaline that you mentioned there like do you recall times in the car where where you were abundantly nervous or or, or is it the case that with with formula one drivers that just doesn't enter your head um well not so much in formula one but 1970 was, i was competing in the european formula two championship I had a major accident in france a rear tire had deflated and it actually the, the tire pulled away from the beads of the rim so it was a high-speed accident, and I ended up with a fractured ankle, broken leg, and a badly broken arm. So when you're out of a car for a long time, following a major accident, your mind can start to play tricks. And the trick it plays is, can I get into the car? Can I drive that car again? Am I mentally damaged by that accident, which is, in this case was a high-speed accident? And I actually went to the thing at Brands Hatch that about October 1970, and that might have been to do with uh, Formula Atlantic. And John Crosley had made a very nice car, which was basically a car that would have been used in America, uh, and but certainly went on to be used in America and Formula Atlantic. And John said, look, would you drive the car at this demo at Brands Hatch? And I said, yes. But when I was sitting in the car, in the pit lane, I'm going, am I doing the right thing? Can I do it? But as soon as the car was started and those senses and vibrations you get from the car and your own focus and body sort of response to it, got into first gear, lifted the clutch, moved down the pit lane. By the time we got to the end of the pit lane, it was back at the races. So the worst thing for you is, is thinking too much. And another example was, you know, Nicky Lauda in 1976 had a, you know, a horrible accident at Nürburgring. Apart from the physical you know, injuries, you know, the burns, which were the very obvious things, he had a much more serious injury to his lungs because he had inhaled toxic gases from the resins in the bodywork and so on and so forth. But in the preparation to get Nicky ready to come back, which is what he planned to do, he worked with an amazing guy called Billy Dungle. And I was very lucky to work with Billy later in the 80s when he joined McLaren when Nicky came to the team. And part of the, the, the rehabilitation for Nicky was, first, first of all, the physical rehabilitation. He had some minor fractures also, which um, there weren't things that would have precluded him from racing, but they had to recover. Obviously, the, the lung issue was something which was you know, concerning because of, you know, your lungs are somewhat important. And then the fact that the, 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 the burns on his, on his up around here on his forehead, but on his scalp, I'm not going into detail because I was with him when he got out of the car. And it was not very pretty. He was severely burned on the top of his head. But Willie Dungle uh, you know, uh, put a, a few little tests together 
to see how Nikki might react in a moment of very extreme stress. And I, he told me this is what he did. One of the things, Nikki's doing something under instruction. In the meantime, Willie's got a sheet of newspaper. He's all bundled it all up into a bowl. And by Nikki's not looking, he's lit it. And he's called her, Nikki. And he threw the paper to him to see what Nikki's response and reaction would have been. Nothing. Nothing at all. What did you do that for? You know, and I'm not using the expletives. And it, so Willie knew that Nikki was 100% capable of getting into that car, which he did at Monza, and going out initially did his first session and was building up, getting accustomed to the feel of the car. Monza's a high-speed circuit, so you've got to get accustomed. Your your eye speed, distance, judgments, all those things have got to be retuned. By the time he got to the end of that first session, he was he was great. He did a, one of the most courageous things I think I've ever seen any athlete in any sport ever do, having come away from a life-threatening, very unpleasant accident and getting back in again, and undoubtedly in a, a fair degree of discomfort and pain, finished fourth in that Grand Prix. When he took his helmet off, the bandages were swathed in blood. I mean, a, a level of courage above and beyond the call of duty, believe me. And I'll always remember that as one of the great moments in my friendship with Nicky. Um, and um, you know, I'm proud to say I call him a friend. That's incredible. Just the fact that he had that bravery. And, and, and as you say, when you take the helmet off and you see the damage that, that's been done during the race, even it's quite something. That, it, that That's a topic that does come up. And it's one of the more morbid questions, I guess, John, that comes up when... When people want to to ask cert, uh, certain questions of a Formula One driver or ex Formula One driver, is is that of death in a race? And and I know that that that's something that would have happened at, at multiple times during your career. Where uh, even in, in was it South Africa, nineteen seventy seven, Tom Price uh, was killed in that race, and the track marshal uh, Jansen van Veren was killed in that race. Like when, when something like that happens, and I know it happened at other points as well in your career, is it hard to to let that go mentally for for quite some time, given you were involved in the in the race? I'll give you another example. 1973, the USA Grand Prix, Watkins Glen. I love that racetrack. It's a fantastic circuit, certainly for the cars of that era, the early middle 70s cars. And in one of the sessions on the Saturday, all of a sudden, everything went quiet. All the drivers that were on the track came in, with the exception of one, and that was Francois Sabah. Now, at that point, I'd been in the pit lane, so I didn't see what had occurred, but it had been a particularly bad accident. I mean, again, not going into the detail of what happened to Sever, but it was extremely unpleasant. Those that went by and stopped, and one in particular was Judy Schechter. Judy Schechter had been, one might say, a wild child in his early Formula One career. When he went and saw the consequence of that accident, it was, it was just a day and night change in his philosophy and approach to motorsport dangers. So, the circuits closed and waiting for the barriers had to be replaced. It was a long period of time. And then the circuit was reopened. And I was hanging around, um, waiting for the, you know, well, the session's going to end in 20 more minutes anyway. And I was driving for Bernie Eccleston in the third Brabham. And Bernie said, John, what are you doing? I said, well, I understand Francois died. And I mean, just out of respect, you know, maybe I thought we'd just not go out. And Bernie said, John, get in that car now. You're a professional race driver. So was Francois Sever. 
Saber and you and everybody here, when you're driving that race car, you are doing something above and beyond anything in the world you want to do more. And he said, that, that's the risk. You know, Francois sadly lost his life. But don't let that stop. If you, if you can't deal with it, go home. And actually, that comment, that observation, a bit of philosophy from Bernie, helped me all the way through my racing career, almost to the point, and it's rather sad to say this, that you become immune to other tragedies. I mean, the, the one fatality that upset me a ball, and there were a lot on our period, you mentioned Tom Price, and that was a particularly unpleasant accident as well. But in 1978, Ronnie Peterson had a major accident at the start of the Grand Prix. There were four drivers involved, Ricardo Patrese, Judy Schechter, James Hunt and Ronnie. I started directly behind Ronnie on the left-hand side of the grid and he immediately went over to the right and I went up alongside and I'd cleared him. When I came round at the end of the first lap, you'd think it'd been an aircraft accident. I've never seen a racetrack in such a state with bits of cars, cars, drivers walking back. One of them was Derek Daly. Derek Daly, he was in the middle of that pack and he sort of got involved in it. Um, and he was walking back. He was absolutely shocked. I've never seen a driver look so shocked as Derek. Well, he barely didn't know where he was. But Ronnie was one of those people that was a very special man. And while the accident had taken place just after the start, and eventually he was taken off to hospital, he was certainly alive at that point. He had severe leg injuries, some minor burning. But overnight, uh, he had a brain embolism, a blood clot, as a consequence of the the, the fractures he had suffered, and he died in early hours of Sunday morning, or Monday morning. And I mean, honestly, I remember, I, I get goosebumps, I can feel it now, just being made aware that Ronnie had died, and it was probably the, that was the one emotional reaction of all the other fatalities that have occurred around my career that it upset me deeply, it really did, because Ronnie was one of those very special people, and his loss was hugely missed. Is is there an air as well? It reminds me of um, I think it was a Tom Wolf book, the right stuff, talking about uh, you know writing about air, air airline pilot or not airline pilots, but but fighter pilots and, and air force pilots back in the fifties and sixties when safety wasn't the same. And any time there was an accident, the attitude, the pervading attitude from from the rest of the pilots was, well, it won't happen to me. Was, was there was there something similar within the, the Formula One driver ranks that any bad accidents that occurred, you always maybe had to convince yourself, well, that that happened to him, it will never happen to me. I think where everybody was aware that, you know, if you have an accident and that generation, you could have a, a bad accident, you could have a fatality. But you always felt that you, you did your preparations and you took into account circumstances on the racetrack. The things that you couldn't control, again, in this era, was car reliability and car failure. And that was very much more uh, common than it would be today. So you had to bear that in mind. And I mean, just again, another thing, just watching that race on Sunday, commentating in that race on Sunday, we had an onboard camera in the cockpit of, I think it may have been, uh, it was either Ferrari or the Sky Tempesta McLaren. And watching as the car came, watching on board in the footwell, as the car got near to turn one, suddenly I noticed the driver's left foot coming across and just dab, 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 dabbing the brake pedal before he gave it a full uh, a full braking effort. And I went, look, look what he's doing. And this is something we used to do because it was quite a common thing 
uh, in a Formula One car, you get a, a thing called brake pad knockoff. So a little bit of distortion flexibility in the upright would cause the pistons to, to come away from the disc, which therefore meant when you put your foot on the brake, you had a much bigger displacement to push before you, the, the, paid, the pads came in contact with the disc. So it's called brake knockoff. And here was this driver going, did three times. I said, look, look, look. I hadn't seen a driver do it, other than I did it a lot when I was racing, but I'd never seen a driver doing it on television. And there we had it live in our broadcast, something I would say a unique image of what a driver does. And even in a contemporary car, and as good as the modern GT3 cars are, in the driver's brain, he just wants to be sure that when he comes down to the big, big brake at the end of the straight in Barcelona, when he hits the brake pedal, it's not going to go like that. It's going to go that. And he's going to have a strong pedal and he's going to have a good brake. Those are little things that you used to do unconsciously because you wanted to make sure if you're going into Tarzan Herpen, for example, in Zandvoort, high speed straight, tight corner, you want to make sure 100% your brake pedal is going to be with you. Yep, that is John Watson speaking about his relationship with the late, great, former teammate of his, Nicky Lauda. That is all we have time for on the F1 pod this week with myself, Shane Hannan. We will be back very soon. We're usually live on Wednesdays after race weekends in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off The Ball daily podcast feed. We'll be back with you very soon. Good luck.